Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded via Zoom. We apologize for the lowered sound quality. Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Programme on Governance and Local Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. In this month's Governance Uncovered, Ellen Lust talks to the political scientist Liv Tunnensen about the recent military coup in Sudan and the economic, cultural and political history leading up to it. Liv is a senior researcher at CMI and director of the Center of Law and Social Transformation. She has a track record from the Middle East and Northern Africa, with long-term stays in Sudan, Lebanon and Syria. Liv has specialized in Sudanese politics for more than a decade and has conducted extensive fieldwork in the country. She has also been a lecturer at the Afad University for Women and held numerous of lectures for regional universities in the West, East and South of Sudan. This has all given her a wide network of contacts with Sudanese academia, politics and civil society. In addition, Liv's work has involved long-term collaboration with several research institutes and research partners in Sudan. In the description below, you can find more information about Liv and a recent published book that she has contributed to called Women and Peacebuilding in Africa. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and to the GLD newsletter if you want more content like this. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Liv, I want to thank you for joining us today to talk about the Sudanese coup and to understand a lot more the background and the conditions around it. I was excited to talk to you because I've read recently some of your work and in it you had actually talked about the reasons why a democratic transition may be very difficult in Sudan and then shortly afterwards the coup unfortunately took place. And so I'm just really excited to learn from you how the coup has unfolded, but but more importantly, what are the conditions and how should we understand it? So maybe if you want to just give us a bit of the background of the coup itself. Okay, thank you so much, Helen. So a week ago, there was a military coup in Sudan. General Burhan from the Sudanese Armed Forces grabbed power and suspended the transitional government and the 2019 Constitutional Charter. In order to understand that, we have to step back and go back to the Sudanese revolution of 2019. So people protested against the regime of Omar al-Bashir. He had been in power for 30 years. It was an authoritarian regime uh, made up of uh, Islamists and military actors. After six months of street protests, Bashir was ousted from power, but the military actors stayed. So in in a way, the the Islamist part of the regime was out of government, including sort of the the ruling um, National Congress Party, which was the Islamist party in power. What happened next was that the the protests uh, continued against the military because they were perceived to be part of the Bashir regime. That ended up in a, a bloodbath to some extent on um, June 3rd, where military actors started shooting against the peaceful protesters. This ended up with calls for uh, negotiations between what we call the, the Forces of Freedom of Change, which is a coalition representing the protesters, and the military under sort of arguments of saving lives to, to end the bloodshed. 
So we ended up with sort of a hybrid government or a hybrid solution where both military and civilian actors formed the transitional government. So Sudan had a sovereign council as a head of state, which was made up both of civilian and military actors. And for the first part of the transitional period, uh, Burhan himself was uh, the chair of this sovereign council. And when time came for him to hand over power to a civilian representative in, in this council, then the military coup came. So many observers would say that, you know, this military coup has been in the cards, so to speak. So both because Sudan has the majority of its time after independence in uh, 1956 been ruled by military regimes. We have seen short periods of attempts at democracy and civilian rule, but these have been very short lived. But more importantly, many observers were very sort of critical of this hybrid solution because they believed that it was just a postponement of, of a confrontation with the military. That this was in, this was basically in the cards because the military has very strong economic and political sort of interests and that it's very unlikely that they would step down when the time was ripe for a sort of full transition to civilian rule. So that gives you a little bit about the background. But I have to say, the Sudanese people have been very critical of the transitional gov government and the cabinet uh, led by Abdullah Hamdou. They do not feel that he has delivered on key aspects of what was promised in the constitutional charter and the revolution. Uh, for example, there have been outbreaks of violence in eastern Sudan, and uh, one of the major ethnic groups there, the Bijab, have actually closed uh, the port in the Red Sea and blocked the main road to Khartoum. So basic goods have not sort of reached people in uh, other parts of Sudan. But what we are seeing now, or the last week, is um, you know people are out again in the streets, and they are very, very clear in their demand for civilian rule. So all sort of criticism of Hamdok and the forces of freedom and change, they have put this, been put aside for now. So they are very unified in their call for a civilian government. Thank you. This is incredibly helpful. And one of the things that it raises in my mind is a question about how to understand the military itself. So when you presented the Bashir government, you've presented it as, as essentially kind of a coalition between the military on the one hand and Islamists on the other. Right. It's sort of yeah. especially through the ruling party. And I'm wondering, is there a component of the military that is also Islamist? I mean, what's the ideology of the military or is this purely, as you noted, an economic issue where the military has so many economic interests and is so kind of institutionalized in itself that it sees the threat of civilian rule as being much more important than any ideology? Well, first of all, the military is made up of quite many arms right now. So you have the Sudan Armed Forces, where the Burhan, the, the one that has been forefronting the coup, is heading. But you also have the security services, which were, during Bashir's regime, very loyal to him. And then you have uh, the Rapid Support Forces, which are basically the Janjaweed militia. So when the conflict in Darfur was raging at its worst, the government was sort of um, waging this war through a militia in the area called the Janjaweed, with uh, Hemeti as the, uh, the leader. He is now also part of the, the sovereign council. 
But then I think five, six years ago, this Janjaweed militia was included into the Sudanese army as rapid support forces. So there are many sort of branches within the military forces, and they are not always in alliance with each other, first of all. When it comes to Buran, I think it would be very difficult at this point to resort back to sort of Islamism. So uh, as of now, the sort of ideological orientation of this new military coup makers in Sudan is very unclear. And the reason why it's very difficult to just become Islamist again is because Burhan especially has made quite deep alliances with Egypt and Hanethi with uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So this military coup has very strong backing from some of uh, Sudan's neighbors. And these neighbors are not very interested in an Islamist regime in Sudan, and neither are they very interested in democracy. So they want the military and the, the military actors in power, but not necessarily with an Islamist sort of orientation to it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's important to keep in mind these kind of regional actors and how they're playing a role. I'm curious, you, you mentioned sort of the groups in the East who had felt like they had been sidelined in a sense, even have grievances against the civilian part of the government. Can you say a little bit more about the kind of the regional disparities and the, the regional conditions within Sudan itself? As Sudan has been sort of basically in some one conflict or another since almost before uh, independence, there has been conflict within the north and the south before South Sudan became an independent country in 2011. And, and still after that, there have been sort of uh, armed struggles along the border. There has been armed conflict in the west of Sudan, the Darfur region, and also in the east of Sudan. So there have been like multiple conflicts uh, that have been ongoing for for quite a long time. And the one main sort of root cause of, of these conflicts, at least one thing that they all have in common, is a history of marginalization, both politically, economically and culturally. So... Let's start with culture. So the Sudanese nation, since before on the eve of independence, has been based on an idea that Sudan should be an Arabic and uh, Islamic nation. That doesn't reflect the reality on the ground because there is a lot of diversity in terms of ethnicity and race, but also in terms of languages, culture. Number two, in terms of politics, Sudan has, uh, since power was handed over, over from the British, been sort of concentrated among certain Arab Muslim northern elites. And there are particularly three ethnic groups that have had political power in Sudan almost throughout the, the entire period since independence. And these uh, political elites have sort of been able to initiate sort of development projects in the regions that they come from. Uh, but the regions in the east, the west, the south have sort of lagged behind. So there's been quite a lot of discrepancy in terms of economic development. If you look at the urban centers in, in the north and compare them to the east, the west and the south. 
this has been sort of a root cause of continued conflict in Sudan. And one of the first and main missions of this traditional transitional government was to start a process of peace negotiations and, and get sort of a comprehensive peace in Sudan for the first time. Uh, however, there are several reasons why that didn't work. I mean, we had Juba Peace Agreement that was signed in uh, 2020, but it was not comprehensive because two of the major rebel groups, probably the biggest ones that have the most sort of military power, did not sign the agreement. And also the um, peace process were, was divided into five tracks, depending on like one track for each sort of region in Sudan. And the reason why protests started in the East was that they felt that this agreement did not address the root causes of marginalization in the East. And that especially Darfur and uh, what is called the two areas between uh, Sudan and South Sudan, but much more attention in the peace agreement than the East. So there was very a lot of dissatisfaction with the peace agreement in the East. And then the historical pattern sort of uh, uh, repeated itself. So when we think about the civilian side of the transitional government, was it controlled and maintained predominantly from the three groups that had been historically in power, or did it actually include members of these sort of previously marginalized groups? Uh, the picture is a little bit complicated because when we say the civilian component of the government, we are mainly talking about the forces of freedom of change. So in order to answer that, I have to sort of speak to how which groups are included in that coalition. So first of all, it's like the political parties in Sudan. There is also a labor union, especially the Sudan Professional Union, which was very instrumental in the December Revolution. There is civil society. And then neighborhood committees, as they are called. These were like local committees that started during the revolution in the neighborhoods and were very important in the organization of demonstrations throughout the whole country. And then there are also at least some of these rebel groups. So this coalition was, first of all, very male-dominated. The leadership structure of this uh, coalition was uh, extremely patriarchal, both in terms of gender and youth. And uh, as you may or may not know, like women and youth were the backbone of the revolution. But in the entire sort of trans transitional period, they have been repeatedly sidelined in these political processes, for example, in terms of appointments to political office. So although Abdullah Hamdok is leading the cabinet and are making uh, political appointments of, uh, for example, state governors, etc., he has to do it based on nominations coming from the forces of freedom and change. And those nominations take place within sort of the leadership structure of this coalition, which is extremely male and, and also older men. For example, when nominations for state governors were to be made, the, um, the FFC came with an entirely exclusively male list of nominees. And there were huge sort of outrage and demonstrations from sort of the women's movement and women's groups in the country. Second, I would say that the political parties have been especially strong in this civilian sort of uh, coalition, and they were not particularly active sort of during the revolution itself. They came more after 
collapsed when we had a transitional government. And it seems like they have been hiding under a rock the last 30 years in terms of all the, you know, everything they are interested in seems to be to get a piece of the cake for themselves rather than to have represent an alternative vision of a true sort of inclusion, both in terms of the marginalized areas, but also in terms of uh, women and youth wondering if the ways in which we see the old parties coming back and playing a role, women and youth being marginalized and the marginalized areas not necessarily gaining representation, would some make an argument that the reason for that is the lack of human capital among those groups? Is that something that the civilian side is saying? And can you give us a better sense of the extent to which that may or may not be true? Yeah, that's a very good question. I definitely that's an argument used against women. Going back to the example of appointment of uh, state governors and also in other appointments for political office, you know, there are several arguments that are being used. Like one of them is that there are simply not uh, capable women out there. Second, that, you know, Sudanese culture is conservative. They're not ready for female governors because they would not be accepted. And the third argument that has been used has been related to the fact that there have been attempts at making alliances between different women's groups in Sudan and may have not been always very successful. And then the argument is used that women are disquarreling among each other and they are very emotional, whereas men, when they are quarreling, it's politics and it's rational. So obviously, this is not substantive. Created uh, claims. There are there have been several uh, projects initiated to make lists of competent women across all regions in Sudan for the appointment of uh, the legislative assembly, which we are still waiting for. And but I'm uh, actually I'm a bit I'm unaware of these arguments being used in the same way towards marginalized groups in in uh, Sudan's uh, regional areas. So I, I, I don't think. I'm able to answer that question now. But I think what is important here is that every time there is like attempt at making peace, it's the male elders, whether they are part of political parties or rebel groups or ethnic groups that get a seat at the table. And this creates sort of a pattern that if you want political power, you have to take up arms in order to get there. So when that becomes the sort of main way of making peace, then a lot of other groups are excluded from these processes, not only women and youth as groups, but I mean, people that are affected by war in these areas that we are talking about. So they don't necessarily feel represented by these rebel groups that get a seat at the table and get a share of the cake while they do not. Other than having to, to turn over power to the civilians, was there kind of a critical signal that some of the kind of political and economic prerogatives and privileges for the military were going to be taken away? Not necessarily taken away immediately, but long term, yes. Because first of all, part of the Juba Peace Agreement had sort of um, stipulations regarding transitional justice. And uh, obviously, these uh, military actors are, you know, responsible for war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide even. And obviously, they would have little to gain by handing over power completely to the civilians because they would have ended up in the criminal court. 
As long as we are in the transition and they are part of the sovereign council, they have immunity. But that does not necessarily last when and when the transitional period is over, and then they might be in big trouble. And obviously, you know, some of the political sort of economic or the economic interests of the military is also tied to those actors that are backing them, especially Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. And Hemeti himself is also controlling the gold mines in Darfur. And he's like the richest man in Sudan. And so they have quite a lot to, to potentially lose. And they obviously do not want to end up in, in ICC. <laughs> Thank you. That's extremely helpful. I'm wondering when we think about those who are out in the streets and continuing to confront the military on behalf of the civilian and on behalf of the transition, can you tell us a little bit more about who they are and are they are they the same people who are out in the streets in 2019 or has there been any change in who's on mobilizing? I think there are many of the same groups, but I think as I, as I previously mentioned, the Sudan Professional Union was particularly important during the December Revolution of 2019. But since then, the organization has sort of lost its, its course to a great extent. The local uh, neighborhood committees were really important during the revolution, and they have also been largely sidelined in the transitional uh, government period. Um, but they have continued to mobilize at the local level, not necessarily mobilized in a political way, but because Sudan has been in a very difficult economic situation. These are the people who have been doing a lot of grassroots work in terms of helping people with sort of basic necessities. So they have sort of continued to organize as groups in neighborhoods and uh, they have gained a lot of uh, experience in leadership during this period in doing that. And I think they are very important now also um, during the, the current demonstrations that we are seeing. And I can see that they are using some of the same tactics as they did during the December revolution. The main tactic was to disperse sort of the protest into different neighborhoods. So if you had like one extremely big demonstration in the heart of the city, then it would be easy for the military to crack down. But if you have multiple locations within same cities, then it's more difficult for the security to clamp down on everyone at the same time. So the protests in the neighborhoods are extremely important. And the, these local resistance committee have been and continue to be very important in mobilizing the current protests. There has been blocking of internet and uh, telecommunications in Sudan. So we don't really get like the full picture of, of the demonstrations. And, you know, there are certain information that reach me and others, but not from all locations in Sudan. So it's difficult to say how big it is, but it looks like there are masses of people coming out in the streets. And again, it looks like it's the youth that are at the forefront of this protest. You've touched on this a little bit, but when I think of the protests, and I think many of us will, will imagine them in Khartoum, but not necessarily across the country, how widespread geographically is it? And are there particular regions that seem to be, I realize that the, the information is limited, but that seem to be more mobilized than others? 
I I mean, I've seen images of people like out protesting Khartoum and in Port Sudan, different locations in Darfur, in Atbara. I mean, the information that comes out suggests that this is these demonstrations and protests are, are across the country, not only concentrated in Khartoum. And looking forward and thinking about, you know, what are the potential paths that might be taken? I'm not asking you to have a crystal ball, but to think about how, particularly given the economic conditions and and the disparities, but also this sort of longstanding history of military sort of privilege, what are the possibilities that the Sudanese might see to, to be able to exit from the current crisis? I think there are a lot of factors that have to come together. <laughs> I think, you know, the current situation, even though like Burhan has the backing of Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and a lot of funds are, are coming from these locations to back them. I think that the U.S. has frozen its aid to Sudan, that the World Bank has frozen the loans to Sudan. I mean, it's going to have economic impact on the country when it's already in a very, very difficult situation. Situation. And I do not see how the military actors are going to sort of survive under those circumstances. At one point, they need to have some support within society. So I, I think it's a very difficult situation. And I think, you know, the whole economic reform is one of the biggest challenges. Sudan had to sort of jump through a lot of loops in order to get removed from the famous list of states supporting terrorism, and it had political and economic consequences for the country. But everybody sees that it is necessary, but you won't necessarily see the sort of impact of, of these changes immediately. It takes time. So it's a very precarious situation. I understand sort of that there have been grievances uh, against the transitional government because life has almost become harder during this period. <laughs> when I see, you know, the masses of people out in the streets uh, demanding civilian rule, it's clear that they, they are willing to sort of to wait a bit longer to see the, the positive ramification of the acts of this of a transitional government and not resort back to a, to a military. But I think uh, the regional international dimension of it is also very important. A lot of Sudanese are now feeling slightly, at least disappointed, if not betrayed by international community, because they are sort of demanding that the military should start new negotiations with the civilian component, whereas what they want is a complete civil state. So it's a very tricky situation. At the current point, I'm not really sure which, you know, and which direction it, it will take. But I, I obviously for, for Sudan, I hope that we will end up with a civilian government at the end of it. I agree. And particularly given sort of the tenacity that many of the Sudanese have shown, it seems very much like we can hope that it achieves its goal. It's been great. I really, really, really appreciate you, especially I know you've got a thousand things going on. So no, it was. Uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. <laughs>